It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello, Murder Sheet listeners. We wanted to give you all a heads up about our live show we'll be appearing on this coming Wednesday. At 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, October 20th, we'll be joining the Retail War Zone for a discussion about violence in fast food restaurants. It should be an interesting discussion, and we're looking forward to it. So make sure to check it out. Follow Retail War Zone at Generation Void on Twitter for more information about where to listen. And if you can't make it live, the discussion will be posted later on in the Retail War Zone's podcast feed. So you can give them a listen and check it out there. Content Warning This episode contains discussion of murder and violence. We apologize in advance for mispronouncing any names in this episode. There was only one bullet in the chamber. That's what the stranger said.
as he aimed his gun at Joseph Principe. Click. Nothing happened, but the snap of the trigger must have rang in Principe's skull. Maybe his thoughts fled back to earlier, before this nightmare began. July 22, 1959, had just been another Monday at Slanix, with Principe tending bar at his tavern-slash-bowling alley, situated at 85 Division Avenue in East Islip. Click. As Principe chatted with two of his patrons at the bar, a husky man had sauntered in. He was 5'10", about 165 pounds, and flabby-looking, with pale eyes and close-cropped hair that shrunk from his forehead. He also had these expressive eyebrows that could quirk up to match his smirking smile. Click. This man, this stranger, pointed a gun at Principe and demanded money. Panicked, the barkeep froze. So began the game of Russian roulette. Click. Somehow, even amidst a mock execution, Principe managed to gain enough composure to hand over $60 from Slanik's cash register. The gunman stalked out, but not before posing a final question to Principe. The stranger had pulled the trigger four times during the one-sided game of Russian roulette. Would you like to try for five? He asked, smiling. The tavern owner shook his head, and the stranger departed. Principe was so rattled by the incident that he didn't report it to the cops. Perhaps he thought it was a bizarre one-off, the terrifying antics of a drunk drifter. But the stranger wasn't done. He was only just getting started. Click. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Other Long Island Serial Killer, part one. You may have heard of the Long Island serial killer, an unidentified murderer or murderers 
who slaughtered somewhere between 10 and 16 people across two decades. He, or they, if you believe the multiple killers theory, dumped his victims on the south shore of Long Island. That case has garnered a lot of attention, and rightfully so. But decades before police discovered the first skeleton in a snow-encrusted burlap bag, there was another Long Island serial killer. This one killed restaurant workers during a spree that lasted a week altogether, a brief blaze of violence across the island. But the consequences of that destruction were real and lasting. In this first episode, we'll get into this killer's first two murders. Next week, we'll cover the third killing, the murderer's arrest, and conviction. After that, we'll close things out with a discussion with Professor Robert McCree from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. We'll be talking with him about one of the most confusing elements of this story, how a serial killer could be paroled after a few decades. Before we get into all that heavy stuff, let's do a quick geography lesson. I spent a great deal of time out in the North Fork of Long Island as a kid, and I have plenty of cousins living out in Nassau County, Suffolk County's neighbor to the west. I'm not terribly familiar with most of the locations we'll discuss today, but you should know that Suffolk County is the easternmost county in New York State. If Long Island is a knife jabbed into the Atlantic Ocean, then Suffolk County makes up most of the blade. This first place we're going to discuss, Bellport, is a village situated on the south shore of the island in Suffolk County. Bellport is where Rudy Feicht owned and operated his namesake Steak and Chop House. Over a week after the incident at Slavics, he was serving the night's last customer. But a car parked out front in his parking lot was distracting him. The driver, a young husky white guy, appeared to be casing the joint. After his final diner paid up and left for the night, Fike locked the front door. But he realized that the back door was still unsecured. And the husky guy didn't appear to be in his car anymore. Fike ran for the back of his restaurant. He managed to lock the back door. A moment later, somebody, presumably the suspicious stranger, began banging on the door, rattling the knob, begging to be let in. The driver claimed that he needed to use a phone. He was desperate. Fike called him a bum and told him to get lost. Honestly, folks, the murder sheet tips its hat to a man who knows in his heart that the customer is not always right, because that move probably saved Fike's life. Unfortunately, a lot of others were not so lucky. The first killing took place the following night, on July 31, 1959, in Islip, a town a 20-minute drive to Bellport's west. That day was a Friday. The place was John Stelicantessen on 472 Main Street. Back when we were living in Brooklyn, Annie and I followed the killer's path through Suffolk County. Islip's quiet Main Street was the first place we visited. It was a gray afternoon in late December, and we found a real estate business in an unassuming brick building. Outside, there was a tree with all these colorful glass beads strewn about the roots. 
Back in 1959, a man named Hans Hackman owned John's Delicatessen at that same location. He was either 53 or 54. Newspaper reports from the time aren't consistent. He had two kids. A little after 10 o'clock, the killer encountered Hackman, who was working alone in the delicatessen. Later on, the killer would divulge his own version of events to police. That Friday had been a payday. After work, he'd blown 10 or $15 of his $115 paycheck on booze. After swinging by his house to grab dinner from his wife, the killer went back out for even more drinking. He threw back two shots at a bar and grill in Islip, then wandered into John's delicatessen. He'd claimed that he'd asked Hackman for a cheese sandwich, but apparently the deli owner didn't have what he wanted. At some point, the killer became irate. He pulled his gun and barked, This is a stick-up, Sonny. He claimed to have immediately shot Hackman then, in the shoulder and belly, and that the deli owner stumbled to the back of the business, muttering, I'm dead. The killer followed him, thinking it'd be a shame to waste another bullet. But Hackman just wouldn't die, so the killer shot him one more time, through the heart. Then he swiped Hackman's wallet from the dead man's back pocket. Without a mask, I just got to kill, he told police. The story sounds a bit like it was told by a guy who thought he was living in some kind of gangster movie. The broad outlines of his story were correct, but we don't need to take him at his word on all the details. I can imagine that Hackman could probably smell the alcohol off this guy. Based on his behavior during the previous two incidents, the killer was likely acting erratic, sinister. I can only imagine that he made Hackman nervous. Police would find the diner's cash register jammed. Perhaps that's what prompted the killer to pull the trigger. Either way, senseless robbery murders weren't exactly a common occurrence in Islip in 1959. We filed records requests with the Suffolk County Police Department and got back just a single sheet on the Hackman case. It was a faded complaint from a man named Irwin who ran another delicatessen and felt that a customer of his, only known as Russell, might be somehow involved. We can assume that Russell was not involved because, unfortunately, police would soon learn that the Hackman murder was not an isolated event. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. 
It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20 percent of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20 percent of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. For the next case, we actually received a small stack of files. Those documents included a scrawly, handwritten statement from 53-year-old Wilfred Booten, who said he awoke at his St. James home on the morning of August 5, 1959. Around 4 a.m., he drove down the Jericho Pike to the Diane Diner in Smithtown. Booten's home in St. James was about 10 minutes from Smithtown. Smithtown is a town on the north shore of Long Island, 20 minutes north of Islip. If you picture Long Island in your mind, Smithtown is closer to the northern, sound-facing side, while Islip is located on the southern, ocean-facing side. Last December, we had less luck finding the old location of the Diane Diner in Smithtown than we'd had with John's Delicatessen in Islip. The whole area has seemingly been demolished to make way for a strip mall. The local Capital One Bank location seemed to be the closest approximation. We did, however, manage to freak out a local who asked us what exactly we were looking for. Have an address? Anyways, back in 1959, when Booten decided to stop in for breakfast, he found the town was dark and quiet. I didn't notice any other cars or people in the area, Booten wrote. He said he left his car and walked up to the diner's front steps. Through the glass door, he could see a man on the floor. His head was bloody and he was lying in a pool of blood, wrote Booten. I then left immediately and drove my car to the Smithtown Police Headquarters. After a few unsuccessful attempts to find the headquarters, Booten finally arrived. Around 4.20 a.m., he burst through the door and told the officer behind the desk that he had just left the last diner on Main Street and had seen a man lying on the floor in a pool of blood. 
The cop on duty radioed for a patrol car. I went back out the door and walked to my parked car on Main Street, Booten wrote. I sat in the car about five minutes. Booten had just seen something horrible, but he still wanted to help. He drove his car to the east end of Smithtown, trying to intercept the patrol car. Then he decided to just go back to the diner, where he found two officers. One was inside the restaurant with the dead body. The other was making a radio call. The officer outside mistook Booten for a customer with terrible timing. I'm sorry, sir, but you can't go in the diner, he said. Booten later wrote, I didn't tell him I was the man who had made the complaint at police headquarters, but just got back in my car and drove away. In a few early police reports, Booten is listed as an unidentified witness. The officer at headquarters had taken note of him, writing down that he had been wearing a grayish striped sports shirt and that he weighed around 200 pounds and had short graying hair. I wonder if early in this investigation, they ever worried that maybe he was the killer and that they'd let the culprits slip through their grasp. Booten, of course, quickly cleared things up by coming in to give a statement. If he hadn't, or if the case remained unsolved, I can imagine internet sleuths nowadays would have a lot to speculate about regarding the mysterious early morning witness. Anyways, Booten's complaint set off a flurry of activity within the Smithtown police force. Responding to a Signal 17, patrolman Jay Walsh and F. Lyons drove their squad car over to the Diane Diner. They found the still body that Booten had earlier discovered there. Walsh leaned over and placed his right hand on his back, but he couldn't find a pulse or even a shallow breath. The man was dead. Walsh and Lyons checked the diner's main room, kitchen, and bathrooms and found no one else. Then they radioed in for a doctor and Sergeant Lamadou. Lamadou and Patrolman Jay Glynn were dispatched to the diner. Like the earlier patrolman, they quickly realized this was going to shape up to be a serious case, one that the brass needed to be made aware of. Lamadou called in Captain M.A. Hess and Chief Cyril J. Donnelly. At 4.50 a.m., Smithtown rang up the district attorney's office. At 4.59 a.m., Dr. Scarvius was called in. He pronounced the victim dead at 5.10. Along with one Dr. Mossery, Dr. Scarbius ordered the corpse removed to the Davis Funeral Home in Smithtown at 5.15 a.m. When Hess showed up, he began snapping photographs of the crime scene and the dead body. The corpse was face down in front of the counter. There was a hole at the base of his skull. The diner's cash register was open and emptied of all of its money save a quartet of quarters that had fallen to the floor. But the killer didn't get everything. The dead man also happened to be carrying a wad of money, amounting to $300, in his pocket. Police looked up the registration of the car outside, a 1959 English Ford. Detective Sergeant R. Cavanaugh also found a blue zipper jacket hanging in the kitchen, with an operator license in it. 
Both the license and the car's registration trace back to 53-year-old Lawrence Kircher of nearby Setauket. He worked the night shift at the Diane Diner. Patrolman Clay of the Brookhaven Police was dispatched to the Kircher home on Cemetery Lane in Setauket to share the devastating news with his wife, Zella, also known as Patricia Ann, and his son, Lawrence Jr. At 5.30 a.m., Father Ned of St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church was called in to assist the grieving family. Meanwhile, police set about dusting for prints and searching for brass from the bullet in the diner. Officers ended up lifting three latent prints off the cash register. They also collected two partially filled bottles of ketchup, one Island Manor and the other Pride of Farm, two small gray and white salad plates, a small gray and white dessert dish, sectional dinner plates containing the remains of scallops and a lemon, a silver fork, two paper napkins, a patch of skin from the victim to check for powder burns, samples of the victim's blood, and cash register prints. Dr. Mossery, the local coroner, and Dr. R. Cares also plucked the bullet out of Kircher's forehead for the police to examine. The 32 caliber slug was badly damaged, with a noticeable loss of weight. Early police reports indicated that it may have come from a 5R revolver. Police descended on the various late-night operations in the area, including Sally's Bar, the Glasshouse Bar, Horseshoe Bar, Murphy's Hotel, and Bauman's Restaurant. Only John Bauman, the owner of the latter joint, could say a guy was at his bar. That man was identified as Frank Barton, whose wife waitressed at the Diane Diner. But Barton was quickly cleared. Patrolman Zuma checked out a lead that a man had been committed to Pilgrim State Hospital early that morning. Pilgrim State was a state-run psychiatric hospital in Brentwood, New York. Today, it's still in operation under the name Pilgrim Psychiatric Center, although it is much smaller than it was in 1959. That lead didn't seem to go anywhere, though. Detectives checked in with the family to see if Kircher had any bad habits or assorted enemies. Hess wrote that the family could put no light whatsoever on the killing, although they did note it wasn't unusual for their husband and father to carry a lot of cash on him. Cops also spoke with 55-year-old Joseph Lauer, who'd worked as the manager of the Diane Diner for three months. He'd last seen Kircher at 8.15 p.m. on Tuesday, August the 4th. He gave police a tip about a group of guys who'd come around looking for a job, but police found and cleared the men. Police managed to track down the couple who'd been Kircher's last ever customers. They'd paid for the $2.80 meal that turned up on a diner check tab and the register tape. Virginia and Paul Oster, a married couple who owned the Interlude Tavern in San Remo, came forward to say that they'd eaten at the diner and left around 3.30 a.m. Their order accounted for the scallops found on the unwashed plates. They said they'd last seen Kircher polishing silver, staring out at the highway. There's a novel by American writer George Saunders called Lincoln in the Bardo. It's a terrific, moving read about the death and afterlife of President Abraham Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, 
The reason I bring it up is because it opens with observers describing the moon on the night Willie lay dying of typhoid fever. Only, the descriptions of the moon are completely disparate. Some reminisce about the dark, cloudy night. Others talk about the brilliant moon that hung in the sky. It's a beautiful testament to the fragility of human memory. The typewritten police reports we received, written so long ago by Detective H. Dwyer, Captain Hess, Sergeant R. Lamadu, and Detective Sergeant H. Kavanaugh of the Smithtown Police Department, remind me of that story. They're full of coincidences and contradictions and intriguing roads to nowhere that so often characterize the start of a police investigation. Hilltop Motel owner William Capp interacted with a suspicious young man in green coveralls who seemed jumpy and nervous and left after complaining about the price of a room. An anonymous man telephoned Lauer, the manager of Diane Diner, to say he'd heard from his sister's girlfriend's boyfriend that a hot-headed kid named Casey was behind the killings. That turned out to be part of a vicious campaign of prank calls against a local man. One guy called in saying he had information about the murder, but the lead turned out to be a bust. He just wanted to get a gig as a detective, and Dwyer opined that the man was in need of psychiatric care. Detectives chatted with a milk truck driver in Comac, who said that Smithtown was a stop on Route N for the Oak Tree Farm Dairy. Maybe the killer was a milkman. Robert Harmon, a farmer in St. James, told police he drove through Smithtown between 4 a.m. and 4.20 a.m. with a worker named Willie Watkins. They said they hadn't seen anything odd going on at the Diane Diner. An anonymous man called in a tip about a suspicious fellow drinking at the Tropical Bar in St. James, who said he knew more about the murder. Police interviewed the entire staff at the Howard Johnson's next to the Diane Diner, but nobody saw anything. However, Leon Mauskoff of St. James said he'd been eating at the Howard Johnson's with his wife that night. He saw the Diane Diner closed at 11 p.m. and noticed a dim light in the kitchen. He said he saw a trio of men try to get in and give up and head over to Bauman's Bar. Nobody else remembered the diner being closed, though. Certainly not Charles F. Nichols, the owner of the nearby Shell gas station, or his clerk, Paul Tex Dickinson. Then there were the drivers. Police found a delivery slip from Herman Starr Bakery at the crime scene. But bakery driver Michael Venuti also had nothing particularly relevant to share. He'd always dropped off rolls and pastries at the Diane Diner on his early morning runs. And that morning he'd seen nothing out of place when he swung by around 2 a.m. He witnessed two men one regular-sized, one tall and fat, sitting at the counter then, eating, but nothing gave him a weird vibe about the situation. Police also spoke to George L. Crosby and Charles Jeffries, drivers for the Crescent News Company. Both stopped at Diane Diner early that morning, but neither saw anything particularly unusual. Other tips came in from really credible sources. An ex-New York Police Department detective John Frivola, retired to operate Frivola's restaurant on Route 25A in Smithtown. He phoned in a tip to say his dishwasher got fired after drinking at work and threatening to kill his wife and dog. The man had a record, too, 
but nothing came of that. Myrtle Lauer, the wife of the Diane Diner manager, and her co-worker, Patricia Yurkak, also reported two suspicious men who visited the diner. But of course, all those leads, however promising, ended up going nowhere. Dwyer wrote that his work on the case involved the running down of many leads that turned out to be of no value to our department. And that's especially unfortunate, that despite their exhaustive efforts, police hadn't caught the murderer who shot Hackman and Kircher by August 7th. Because that night, as midnight ticked closer, the killer was roving eastward, out further into the island, toward the warm light of a small diner in West Hampton. A lot of the details in our show came from a Freedom of Information request with the Suffolk County Police Department. Thanks to the SCPD for sending all that over. The rest comes from some intensive reporting from local news sources. Even though this crime isn't as well remembered today, it was covered extensively in the press back in 1959. The New York Daily News ran in-depth features on the case from Ruth Reynolds and Kermit Jadiker. Years after the murders, in 1985, Joseph McNamara wrote a recap about the case as well. Daily News reporters William Murtha and Sidney Klein also did good coverage. I also found Newsday articles from Tom Renner, Pat Gilmartin, Dick Estrin, and Jack Ehrlich helpful. The United Press International and the Associated Press also contributed articles breaking down the facts of the case. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on the murder sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MurderSheet and on Facebook at MSheetPodcast or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the murder sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to MurderSheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.